This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With Donald Trump in the White House, more than 17,000 Coloradans who have temporary relief from deportation may wonder if their days here are numbered. CPR is profiling people who stand to be directly affected by President Trump's actions. And today we have the story of a 16-year-old immigrant living in Grand Junction. He is both deeply involved in his community and uncertain if that connection can last. Here's CPR's Rachel Estabrook. Diego is what we're calling this teen because of the uncertainty around the immigration program that protects him right now. It's for people who came to the U.S. as kids. Diego's lived in this neighborhood for more than half of his life. Driving around, he points out a project he's invested a lot of time in lately. Well, this is the park. They're remodeling the park. I'm part of that. I came up with a, with an idea. We're closing off that door, having that road. Grand Junction has more political conservatives and fewer Hispanics than the rest of Colorado. Yet Diego is comfortable in this community. Later this year, he'll help ask the state for money to finish this park project. Be ready, grantmakers. Diego is pretty good at making his case. Just ask his friends. He always corrects Mr. Pacini in the mornings. He goes in there. He's not even in that class. He goes in there, and then he's like, correction, and then he corrects Pacini. <laughs> you got to, like, prove him wrong, and you got to bring up facts. Then, you got to bring up evidence, yeah. supporting details, all of it. Mike Pacini, who they're talking about, is a social studies teacher at Grand Junction High. At school, Diego spends a lot of his free periods in Pacini's class to help other students and to get in debates with his teacher about history or current events. I'm trying to convince him to join the academic team because he's, he just remembers everything he hears the first time. And he'll read an article one time and then two years later tell me, like, oh, I read that. But, you know, he's, it's pretty impressive, actually. On one lesson, on immigration, Pacini remembers Diego wowed him, talking about his own experience. Diego described crossing the border from Mexico at just five years old. He hasn't been back since. Life is difficult over there. There's a lot of violence. There's actually a lot of gangs, gangs there, like, like extreme violence gangs over there. So Diego's uncle was killed by a gang in Mexico. I'm pretty sure I'd be in a gang right now. <laughs> If I was over there. It's a stark contrast to his life at Grand Junction High School. So do you keep the same notebook all year? Cheyenne Gentry teaches students who are learning English. Diego doesn't need this class anymore, but still. He comes in every once in a while just to sit and talk to the other kids. And I say, that could be you. Get your English up. Get your grades up. You can do this. So he's a fabulous role model for the kids. Outside school, Diego does what other teens do. He plays soccer. My big thing is because I'm tall. I just run up and just head the crap out of that ball. He works at a local fast food restaurant each day after class and on Saturdays, and he goes to the movies whenever he can. I watched Fate of the Furious yesterday. It was amazing. That movie theater is so nice. The state of the art, it just renovated. Like, the sound just goes, bah! Diego works and lives here legally for the time being because of a program called Deferred Action, or DACA, which President Obama created. Its future is uncertain under President Trump, which is why this story doesn't use Diego's real name. As a candidate, Trump pledged to get rid of DACA. He and other conservatives thought it was unconstitutional and executive overreach. President Trump has let DACA continue, though, and he said recently he's, quote, not after the dreamers. But his administration has arrested a handful of them. At least one was picked up after she made her story public, though immigration officials say her status had lapsed and released her after public outcry. Any changes to Diego's status would also change the future that he and his teachers have laid out. We tell him that one day he's going to be mayor of Grand Junction. You know, when, when, when you run for mayor, count, you know, count on our vote kind of a thing. Yeah. Jeffrey Hansen has Diego in a comparative religions class. 
Mike Pacini, the social studies teacher, wants to see Diego go to law school. And Diego's parents picture him in a white doctor's coat down the road. Diego likes that idea, but the only way he can see any of it happen is if he gets to stay in the country long term. So he plans to join the military, at least for a few years. Just four, five, six, maybe. I'm not going over six, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, I'm not going over six. I know a boot camp is difficult, but after that, I heard it's pretty fun. Why go into the military? Citizenship route, it's easier. It's a lot easier, actually. The whole fighting part's scary, but it's okay. I think everyone goes in scared. But you'll get used to it after a while, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Like with other things, he's done the research and he's right. The military may be the easiest and one of the only ways Diego could become a U.S. citizen. As a candidate, President Trump expressed support for undocumented people who enlist. And Diego has no other fast track since his parents aren't citizens and he's not married to an American. When he talks about it with friends, they mostly have a gallows humor about immigration and the thought of deportation. I guess when it's serious, we get serious about it. But then I guess when it's like just playing around, like like we see the cops and be like, ah, immigration, Whoa. run. Immigration, like, run. <laughs> but like, at I the mean, same time, like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes there's a cop right there. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> you don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Jokes aside, there are things about being an immigrant in America that Diego says people might not get. His dad first came to Colorado to work in the agriculture fields in Palisade. These days, Diego only sees his family on Sundays since he and his parents work six days a week, including night shifts. It's difficult to get. I think uh, it's easy for us. Like, we just make money and that's it. Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, we have to take care of our families that are still back in Mexico and pay for lawyers to try to get citizenship try to stay safe, try to not get in trouble. Like, like you could have a friend that goes out and goes to a party until, like, 12 at night, 1, 2, 3. I can't even, I can have to be home at 10 at night, so it's different. An early curfew is a big deal to a teenager. It's also one small thing, one small precaution that the family takes to try to stay off the Trump administration's radar in an environment that looks very different than it did a few months ago. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. And that begins a series of stories about people who stand to be most affected, positively or negatively, by new Trump administration policies. Next week, the story of Coloradans on the Eastern Plains who hope they'll get better health care than they had under Obama. You can join the conversation on our Facebook page, CPR News, or on Twitter, at Colorado Matters. Denver veterinarian Aubrey Lavazo noticed something that made his heart break, that veterans who fell on hard times often sacrificed their own well-being so they could take care of their pets. A dog or cat can be a great comfort to a veteran, especially who suffers from PTSD, for instance. It's why on Saturday, for a second year in a row, he'll offer free services for current and former service members. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's nice to be here. A few years ago, you met a veteran named Bill and his dog, Anastasia, at a doggy daycare in Denver. And I understand meeting them planted the seed for this event. Will you tell me about Bill and Anastasia? Yes, I will. Actually, it's a very heartwarming story. I met Bill actually after the program. We decided to do this program. Bill is an Army veteran who was uh, in the military police and served in the early 90s. Um, For the last three or four years, Bill had been homeless until he met uh, with a person who was part of this program, who helped sponsor the program. 
and learn Bill's circumstances. Bill preferred to live on the streets with his dog, and Bill certainly suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, but preferred to live on the street with his dog rather than go into housing where his, his dog couldn't be. And for that reason, he stayed on the streets. That is because shelters don't always allow pets. Yes, shelters don't always allow pets. And that's been a difficult challenge uh, for that. Although there there are programs now to help those veterans find uh, funding to help them get into housing. And what did you notice about his priorities in terms of taking care of himself versus Anastasia? I, he worried more about Anastasia than himself. He would rather feed Anastasia than eat himself. I remember one particular day when I was at the doggy daycare who was helping him provide shelter for his dog, where he his dog needed vaccinations. And, he, of course, he could not afford them. And my being a veterinarian, I just I said, you know, I can provide those for you. And so I went to my office and picked up the vaccines and came back and vaccinated his dog's his dog, Anastasia, in the doggy daycare. And we walked outside. We were just chatting at that moment, and, you know, he cried. That's how much it meant to him. No one had ever cared that much to do that for him. Uh, A somewhat sensitive question I'd like to pose, which is that should people who have trouble taking care of themselves be taking care of an animal? Have you, has that thought crossed your mind? Yes, you know, that's that's an ethical question, I guess. Honestly, I believe people that struggle taking care of themselves, in many times, dogs are really a blessing in their lives and really help, to, help them to cope um, with with some of the situation. That they're so essential to their lives and, and maybe to their mental health. Yes, absolutely. Well, so this is the second year for the Ainsley Price Day of Service for Veterans, which is at the Volunteers of America Veterans Services Center in Denver. And students from Colorado State University's Veterinary School do these exams and services for the veterans' pets. Things like basic checkups, vaccinations, inserting microchips, and this is all at no charge to the veterans. Uh, would, you, would you share another story of a veteran and a pet that you met perhaps last year? Yes, there is another veteran whose name is Dan, we shall say, and I believe he was in the Marines. And actually, I know him through his wife who worked for me at one time. Uh, Dan was a Marine, and I believe, I'm not sure where he served, but uh, Dan told me personally that without his dog, he doesn't know what would have happened to him. And he helped with the program last year. He really had trouble coping with society, and before he was be married, uh, he really had trouble when he came back coping with, with society. And, and it was, wasn't until he got his dog where he was actually able to venture out and meet with people and become more social. And he still doesn't talk about his experiences, but the dog has really helped him a lot. Interesting. So that it might be easier con- to connect with a pet than with a person. Yes, it is. And there's, there is research that shows that, that bonding with a pet does improve oxytocin, which is kind of the, the hormone that, that promotes pro-social behavior and allows people to interact with other people. What about the rest of the year, though? So you're able to do this once a year. What, what services are there for veterans to get care for their pets year-round? Right now, there are services through some of the nonprofit organizations. We, in my practice, will provide services for those that come through the program, and we will offer follow-up exams, and we can refer them to other facilities at Pet Aid Colorado, 
which can offer services like surgeries or any other procedures that might be needed that we cannot provide. So there are services available. All right. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome, and thank you, Ryan. Aubrey Lavazo owns the Center for Animal Wellness in Denver and also leads the annual Ainsley Price Day of Service for Veterans event. It takes place Saturday morning in Denver. More information at cprnews.org. Is there a fountain of youth? The U.S. government thinks it's possible, not as a literal place, of course, but through science that can extend life. The National Institutes of Health funds research into treatments that can extend human lifespan and keep people healthier for longer. That's where two Colorado professors come in. Their work is the subject of today's beta test about groundbreaking research in Colorado. Karen Hamilton and Ben Miller are in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Colorado State University. They have managed to extend the lives of some mice already. We'll talk about that in a bit. And they join us from Fort Collins. Karen and Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you. Karen, what is your ultimate goal? Um, In your research, I understand it's not necessarily to prolong life. Is that right? That's correct, yes. We don't have any desire to um, make all humans live to be 200. What we're really interested in doing is increasing something that's been um, termed health span. And that simply means the number of years that you live in a a state that's free of the burden of chronic disease, your health span. So that's really what we want. Your health span, I love that term. And the idea, Ben, is then not to make more centenarians of people necessarily, but so that those final years are not um, in a steep decline, I suppose? Yeah, that's a general idea. I think as a result of this, you will have more people that do live to 100. But the idea is to be happy and healthy um, through all your years rather than declining, say, the last one-third of your life. Mm. Uh, I will say that some of the NIH-funded research is absolutely about prolonging life, but not necessarily for the two of you. So, Karen, generally you're trying to affect how the body functions, how well it functions, and what system in the body do you focus on? So our lab has um, an interest in, in skeletal muscle. That might come in part from the fact that Ben and I are both exercise physiologists by training, but also because we know that maintaining the health of skeletal muscle also helps um, slow the aging. Oh, goodness. I think we might have lost Karen. So, Ben, she's talking about skeletal muscle there. Can you expound just a bit more on what kind of muscle that is? So, skeletal muscle is all the muscle that helps you move. So, if you think about your legs and your arms and muscles of breathing, those are all skeletal muscle. The goal of the research that we have done lately is to sort of turn on some of your own protection mechanisms in the body by the use of these compounds so that your body resists the stresses associated with aging. Okay, I think Karen's back on the line. Hi, Karen. Um, Hi. And and so, indeed, you've been focusing on compounds that I understand are plant-based that uh, have a relationship with this skeletal muscle. What can you tell us about the compounds you've you've been working on? Sure, sure.
Sure. So we've worked with a couple of startup companies and nutraceutical companies um, who are interested in combining um, phytochemicals. So that's just a fancy word for chemicals that come from plants that can have activity biologically. And specifically what we're interested in and they're interested in is activating the cell's own ability to protect themselves against stress. So maybe you've heard the term antioxidants before. Yeah. Um, Antioxidants come from food, but that's not really the goal of this. The goal is through these plant-based compounds to turn on the cell's own antioxidant system. The the cells that interact in particular with that skeletal muscle, I gather? You know, the the approach will actually um, turn on these antioxidant systems in all cells. Ben and I just happen to have a focus of skeletal muscle, though we look at all tissues also in our research. Hmm. Skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, liver, starting to see what some of the effects are in brain tissue, so across tissues. So, Ben, I understand that some of your preliminary research has has managed to extend the life of some mice, male mice, I guess, in particular. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's an interesting finding from studies is that this compound worked in males but not female mice. Uh, This would not be the first time that one of these compounds in testing has had a specificity to one sex or the other. an answer right now something that we're interested in exploring what is it about um, this compound and analyze be that you're catching it I'm so sorry for the quality of the phone lines this morning Karen I'll have you pick up from there uh, how how significant was the extension in life of, of these male mice so it was statistically significant, and what really increased was their median or their average lifespan, not their maximal lifespan. And th- that's not an uncommon finding, though through this um, program, it's the National Institutes of Health that does these um, testing of compounds. They've had several that have increased not only the average or the median lifespan, but also the maximal lifespan. And there's, as Ben said, very frequently sex differences, which in, in, in a way is actually a good thing because that helps us to try to understand the mechanism um, by which these compounds might be having a biological effect. Oh, that's interesting. That yeah, the fact that it, it works in male mice but not in female is a clue uh, to where you might look next. And is the idea to develop develop some sort of pill around this or just to change people's diets? Well, I think that's a popular concept to to create a pill. Uh (laughs) And I are always quick to point out that probably the best intervention for an overall increase in health span is maintaining physical activity throughout the lifespan. Um, We all know that that's easy to say and sometimes hard to do and to convince people to do. So I think in our minds, we, if if a pill were to be created, we would never speculate that it could ever be as good as maintaining physical health. All right. Benefits of physical health. The, the the point there that uh, though people may desire a miracle pill, uh, there are certainly downsides to that because you don't want this to be uh, folks sacrificing exercise and other ways of improving their health and their 
lifespan. So um, exactly, yeah. So Karen, tell me what is next in your search? What questions you want to answer about these plant-based compounds that uh, seem to have a rather positive effect on our cells? So we actually have parallel studies with plant-based compounds um, going on at the same time. So the ones that we've been talking about are through the National Institutes of Health to increase, if we can increase lifespan with them. And that's a nice launching pad for starting to understand whether we can also increase health span. At the same time, Ben and I are using some of the same compounds to try to understand if they increase some mechanisms that we think are associated with long life, specifically um, resistance to stresses and also maintenance of the proteins in our cells. The proteome is something that you could um, call all of the proteins collectively in our cells. And because a lot of these have already been shown to be safe, we can move quickly into human subjects. So not all of our studies are happening in mice, but also in human subjects. I suppose that's the nature of using plant-derived materials. And I I guess I want to wrap up, Karen, on a philosophical question. You hinted at this at the beginning. You know, you're not uh, doing what you do so that there are a whole bunch of 200-year-olds on the planet. But given that some of this NIH research does focus on prolonging life, um, is, is that even really what we want? Lots of people living much, much longer. There are all kinds of ethics that come out of that, I suppose. Right. So our philosophy is no. We certainly don't want to increase lifespan at the sake or at the expense of people living a healthy um, life as well. We know that modern medicine has done wonderful things for increasing our ability to stay alive with disease. We don't really want to prolong that period of time where you're just staying alive with disease. There's a term called geroscience that was um, started by the National Institutes of Health. And the philosophy behind geroscience is the best way to prolong health span is not of the chronic diseases associated with aging, cardiac disease, diabetes, cancer, but instead to try to understand the biology of aging. If we can slow the rate at which cells age, then we should be able to simultaneously slow the onset or even prevent age-related disease and thereby increase health span, not necessarily prolonging life beyond the year 100. All these new terms today, health span and geroscience, this field about the relationship between aging and age-related disease. Well, Karen, thanks for being with us and to your colleague, Ben, as well. We appreciate it. We appreciate it, too. Thanks for giving us the time. Karen Hamilton and Ben Miller are in the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Colorado State University. They research compounds that could allow people to stay healthier longer. And we spoke as part of Beta Test, our focus on scientific breakthroughs in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters. Poet Ruth Ellen Coker casts Martin Luther King Jr., singer Eartha Kitt, and comedian Richard Pryor as characters in her latest book. She says third voice is a how-to for a modern minstrel show. 
but instead of white actors in blackface, it tries to capture with authenticity what it's like to be a black person today. Coker chairs the English department at CU Boulder. Her book is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. A note that some of her poems contain sensitive language, and Ruth Ellen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm fascinated by this. You consulted old handbooks for producing minstrel shows, as you put this collection together. And I'm going to ask you about that in a bit. But jokes were a part of these shows. So why don't we begin with a joke and instructions on how to tell it. Um, I'll have you read new jokes for female minstrels. Sure. New jokes for female minstrels. Note. The end lady in these jokes is addressed by name, but any name can be substituted, and the same can be done with the woman. The funnier the name used, the better. Lacey. I understand you have been out west. The woman. Yes, went everywhere, saw everything. Lacey. Well, what impressed you most? The woman. Well, I think I was most impressed by the sunrise. Lacey. Excuse me, that was impossible. The woman. Why impossible? Lacey. Because the sun don't rise in the west. Because the sun don't rise in the west. In these minstrel shows, it was often true that black people were portrayed as as buffoons. Very true. Yeah. And your work in this collection, as I say, is interspersed with instructions gleaned from old manuals on staging these shows, like the joke we just heard. Why did you choose a minstrel show as the basis for the book? Well, I have to be honest that um, I actually had the character of Lacey and Ida first. Uh, And this character that spoke to me as I was navigating my everyday life and as I was trying to acclimate to life in uh, Colorado after many years in St. Louis became more and more obvious as a minstrel character or a minstrel voice. And so once I understood that about Lacey, I went looking for this world that I knew that she inhabited. Um, And I found these books. I'd done a lot of study uh, as a doctoral student uh, on minstrels, but I didn't really understand the nature of the construction of a minstrel show or that a minstrel show was really like local theater, dinner theater at the time, and that in these communities there were uh, everyday people who wanted to put together these shows and they needed some direction. And so lo and behold, I discovered that there are actually how-to books on how to do this. What did you think as you flipped through those books and saw instructions for mounting a minstrel show? Well, I have to say that it's a little bit shocking. Uh, It's hard to believe, uh, even 150 years ago or so, 130 years ago, that uh, any of this was really considered acceptable. But the truth is, the images that we see in those early minstrel productions are still images that we see in entertainment today. Uh, We see these characters of the black buffoon, of the Jezebel, of the stumps, uh, the the, uh, the stump speech. If you see any commercial, for example, and you see, for uh, 
dark-skinned woman aping her eyes, uh, big smile. These are images that come to us via the minstrel, and we're not even aware how deeply embedded they are in our culture. And so if we can overlook them now, I'm sure that then they seemed fairly acceptable. Can you say more about what a minstrel show is like? So blackface is perhaps the most obvious symbol of them. What else did you learn about the forms they took? Well, there are different parts to the minstrel show. There's the cakewalk, there's the oleo, the skit, the jokes, crossfire, first part. There are different characters, the end men, for example. And in the how-to books, basically, you're given all of the parts of the minstrel show, and a local theater production person could just put them together, almost like Legos, to create their own show Hmm. that would actually satisfy their own needs. The oleo, for example, was part of the minstrel show that happened in front of the curtain. So you would have a main act happening on stage. They'd bring the curtain down. And while they were preparing the stage behind the curtain for the next act, in front of the curtain, they would have a small uh, performance called the oleo. And the oleo was almost like an intermission. It didn't always have to do with the skits or the performances that were going on behind the curtain. They were meant to keep the audience occupied while everyone was setting up behind. And in fact, you have oleos in this new collection, Ruth Ellen Coker, Third Voice. Um, Why don't we skip ahead to that? Would you read the oleo that's on page uh, 14, I think? Oleo 42. Oleo 42. The inner ear is full of horses, snails, and vestibules, is a trumpet which implodes. The inner ear spies on your heart. The inner ear wants to be shut in. The inner ear and the outer ear are two ends of a set of cups. The inner ear is most aware of not sleeping in the dark, is sheet and pulse, is fan whir and hum and dog, and the overthought woodpecker comes back just before the sun comes up, knowing the gutter calls him at greater distance, increasing his odds to mate. The inner ear fades, and the eyes devise the day as it slowly disrobes at the window pink and shy. The ear is not gone. The ear and the eye come together. The ear and the eye hear cloud bark engine the tree saying, Shoo. Can you tell me what's going on there? This is a a poem that really inhabits uh, a period of sleeping. The main character in this uh, book, Lacey Enigga, is an insomniac, actually. She lives inside the head of a nameless woman. When the woman sleeps, Lacey cannot. Mm. And so throughout the book, there are these little cycles Uh, insomnia cycles that represent uh, as oleos. And there are these moments of silence, moments of being present, moments of Lacey, Lacey's voice, the woman's voice coming together almost in a meditation that stills and stops all of the other action in the book. So Lacey is indeed the main character in the cast of characters that you created. Um, Yes. can Can you tell us about her full name? Lacey and Iga. 
Um, her middle name is Neva, Lacey Neva Iga. The last name is Iga. And obviously, when you use the initial N dot I G G A, you have the word. Lacey actually has a family. Her mother is Mama. She has a brother named Creighton Zachary N. Iga. So Creighton Zachary Neva Iga. And if you abbreviate that, it's Crazy N. Iga. Um, you have Lacey N. Iga. She has two sisters, twin sisters, Neva Eva Iga and Neva Neva Iga. And then there's Mama. Will you tell us about the first time you remember ever saying the N-word as a black person? I have to tell you that I've thought about this many times, and I don't believe that I said the N-word for the first time until I was actually in a classroom in school reading aloud Mark Twain, uh, in a, among my peers, and I remember feeling as though it was really wrong, and I can remember feeling as though time was suspended in the room, that everyone's eyes were on me because I was the only black child in the classroom, and so for me to say that word out loud in a classroom of black students with a white teacher as we were going through a literary exercise made me feel as though there were a, there was a spotlight on me. And uh, if I resisted, uh, the spotlight would become brighter. So I submitted to the literary exercise of saying this uh, foul word. Huh. Will you tell, tell us about your family? I was um, I'm biracial, and I was raised uh, in a white family, in a poor white family, in northeastern Pennsylvania. I have two younger sisters and a younger brother. My uh, mother and father, I, I know I idealize them quite a bit, uh, but I think of my mother as this kind of working-class hero she was a young woman in Pennsylvania who went off to work as a waitress in the Poconos and had a brief love affair with a jazz musician, and I was the result of that. She was young. She was 21. Um, she became pregnant, and her family, as all families did at that time, tried to convince her to give this uh, black child up for adoption, and she was going to do that and made all of the arrangements and then I was born on her birthday. Hmm. And for her, this was a sign from God, and she kept me. And my father, the other working-class hero in this story, at the time was a taxi driver, young, white uh, taxi driver. And he met this 22-year-old woman. Well, at the time, I guess she was 24, with this two-year-old little black kid. And he decided that... Uh, he could be my father. And so you have these two young, white, working-class kids in their mid-20s, in the mid-60s, getting together to raise this little black kid. That's the romantic story I tell myself in the head, in my head, but I don't think it's that far off. Mm, I'm glad you don't think it's that far off. 
I want to go back to Lacey a bit and um, ask if, if she's just your alter ego in some ways. You know, I, um, I've long said from that past that I have a little project girl in my head. I grew up in a housing project that was built after a huge flood in the valley where I grew up, Hurricane Agnes of 1972. And because it wiped out so many homes and uh, so many people were displaced, it was the way that the housing project came to the suburbs in Pennsylvania. We think of housing projects as these big high-rises in the city. But throughout northeastern Pennsylvania, they started building these little HUD housing projects, and a lot of poor white people moved into them because they'd lost their homes. But still, the housing project is a housing project, and I grew up seeing things and experiencing things that a typical suburban kid doesn't. And you have to be tough, and I was tough. Uh, But I left that life behind. I went off to college, and I entered the world of sophisticated, educated people. But in the back of my mind, that project girl is sometimes jumping up and down, yelling, saying, are you kidding me? Really? Do you want to take this outside? And so as I've gotten older, I realize that that project girl is herself a little bit of a minstrel. Hmm. When I came here to Colorado and I experienced some of the things I experienced, she really took shape in a different way. And that manifestation of the project girl as minstrel, as an adult educated minstrel figure, became Lacey. Uh, How has it helped in your adjustment, just briefly, from St. Louis to Denver? Because you said that this was partly about that adjustment. How has Lacey helped? Yeah. Hmm. About the last 30 seconds here. Well, you know, the thing about Lacey is that I'm not sure if I'd say that she helped. (laughs) In some ways, she helped in that she's an outlet, and she was an outlet that um, uh, I needed. Uh, But I think the help comes in being able to integrate my vision with her voice. Mm -hmm. Ruth Ellen Coker chairs the English department at CU Boulder. She'll become associate dean for arts and humanities in July. Her poetry collection, Third Voice, is a Colorado Book Award finalist, and we've posted poems for the book at cprnews.org. A climbing accident left Rosa Mallory Post of Durango paralyzed from the waist down. She had to relearn things many of us take for granted, like putting on pants, getting into a car. A new device called the Grit Freedom Chair will help her get back into the outdoors. The manufacturer just donated one to her. Another Colorado athlete using this special chair is Trisha Downing of Denver. It helps her get around the state's rugged trails, and she spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel earlier this year. Trish, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. As a wheelchair athlete, you've obviously used chairs designed for sport. So what does this wheelchair allow you to do that you couldn't have uh, done before? This wheelchair actually allows me to do things like go camping or uh, go on off-road terrain, you know, hiking on some, you know, more basic trails. Obviously, it's a little bit too wide for maybe some single track, but just allows you to get off-road and do something a little bit out of the ordinary. And we should say this isn't the only all-terrain wheelchair out there. There are some that have motors and others that are manual as well. But this is the only one that uses bike parts that are easily replaceable if they break. And I'm looking at it. It's in the studio. Uh, can you kind of describe for our listeners what it looks like and how it works? 
Sure. It's um it's a manual wheelchair. So unlike some of the other all-terrain vehicles, they might have some sort of a motor yeah. which requires a battery and intricate parts, but this is looks a lot like a standard everyday wheelchair. The only difference is that instead of having the two caster wheels in the front of the chair, there's actually um, a bar that supports one single wheel. And so that wheel helps you go over the the uneven terrain, whereas the small caster wheels on an everyday wheelchair will sometimes get you stuck. You might flip out of your chair. You know, they might not be able to get through some of the um, bumpy terrain. And then this one doesn't push like a regular wheelchair. You're not using the push rims on the chair. You're actually using a lever drive. And so there is a lever on either side and you push those and that's how you propel the chair. So not only is it giving you an opportunity to go some different places, but it's giving you the opportunity to use different muscles um, than you normally would if you were pushing an everyday manual wheelchair. And, of course, you've got the big bike wheels uh, as the main wheels. Right. It has mountain bike tires so that you can go over, you know, some of that terrain. It it was great. The first day I got it, actually, we went to the park. We went to Wash Park. And it was amazing how much easier it was to get through the grass of the park in that chair as opposed to, you know, my everyday chair, which – is it's just not very fast or easy to push through grass. And we post a video at cprnews.org. Uh, from the looks of it, like like you've said, it, it appears to need a lot of arm strength to operate this. Have you found that? Um, yeah, it definitely is. You know, if you're pushing on a flat ground, it's not too bad. But once you start going up a hill, it gets a lot harder. But it also, having the levers helps you, kind of assists you a little bit in getting up the hill. And how much does this this cost as, a, as compared to in a traditional wheelchair? Um, it depends just because, I mean, this is like about, I think, 2500 mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and a regular wheelchair, like the one I'm in today, probably is about 4500 So okay. it's significantly less expensive. And it is, it's low maintenance because everything on it is um, something that you could get at, at a bike shop that a, you know, local bike mechanic could work on. And, you know, so the parts are easily accessible and, and normal priced. Whereas when you try to replace something on an everyday wheelchair, a medical piece, yeah. like even just a caster wheel can be ninety dollars. Because it's and considered you're medical, this, it seems. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Every time you add medical, it ups the price about five times. So um this chair is great because you can go replace anything you need to at the bike shop. You've, uh, I've heard, been the only one to ask the company that designed this to make it harder to push the levers, to make it tougher to move. Well, for me, pretty much whenever I do something that's, I don't, I guess I just don't <laughs> like to do recreational activities just for the sake of doing work. recreational activities. <laughs> um, I I like to use them as fitness opportunities, and so um, I wanted to, I, I wanted to have it to be a little bit more difficult to push so that I could use it for training purposes just because it does work different muscles. Um, gives you opportunity to do some different things. And so I was looking at it more as a training opportunity than anything else. And, and can I ask, how were you injured? Um, I was injured in 2000. I was hit by a car while I was riding my bike out training. Um, I was a competitive cyclist. And so I was just training in Golden and was hit one day. And you were so you've always been in, in an athletic person, right? Yeah, so I've been uh, doing sports since I was four years old. So it's it's part of who I am and my nature and what I you know look to do every day in my life. 
And and when you mention to people, I go hiking, what is their reaction? Do you, do you use that term, I go hiking? Um, you know, I've probably said that to people <laughs> a time or two. And, you know, I, I think that I think more and more people are understanding that a lot of activities mm-hmm. are becoming accessible right. or that people who are wheelchair users are pushing themselves and their equipment further to do more things. I mean, you know, at the Paralympics this year, there was a, a guy in a wheelchair who did a backflip, right. you know, down a ramp. So, I mean, it's it's like nothing's impossible anymore. There's always someone who's going to figure out a way to make it happen. And, and besides hiking, what other uses do you see for this chair? Um, you know, just even going on a walk. Like sometimes if you're you know, a lot of times people don't realize this. When you're in a wheelchair, especially a manual wheelchair, you have to spend a lot of time looking at the ground because if you hit any uneven surfaces, if there's a crack in the sidewalk, if, um, you know, the curb cut doesn't smooth out at yeah. the bottom or something, you can easily catch your caster wheels and then you're flipping out of your chair. So one of the things that's nice about this um, Freedom Chair is, you know, my husband and I can go on walks together and I don't have to spend my time looking at the ground. I can, you know, push the chair and actually, you know, look at the trees or the flowers or talk to him or not have to pay attention to everything. So I think to me, that's one of the greatest things about it is, is that it's, you know, it's not something you're going to flip yourself out of. And you were given the chair and act as an ambassador for the company that makes them. But we should say you're not getting paid to do that. Uh, I understand you have lent it to a spinal cord rehab project here in Colorado. Right. I've had a couple of opportunities to get the chair to other people in the area who are interested in using it. And uh, one of those places is the Spinal Cord Injury um, Rehab Project. And then um, I also um, run my own camp called Camp Discovery. And we use it at Camp Discovery so the women who come to that camp would have an opportunity to use it also. And uh, that the camp takes place at Rocky Mountain Village, so everything is off-road there. So it's, it was a great opportunity to really get a chance to try it and see how it worked on the uneven terrain. There are new devices that allow someone who uses a wheelchair to stand upright. Right. Uh, have you tried those, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, You know, I think that they're probably good for some uses. Um for me, it's not so good because I have um, some issues with my hip. So for me, I can't really probably go back to a standing and walking type situation. Um, but I think people who have newer injuries, um, whose bodies haven't taken the beating of, of being a wheelchair user for you know nearly 20 years and yeah. sitting for 20 years, whatever, you know, I think a lot of those devices are good. They may or may not be super productive. I mean, like if you want to stand up and walk around the house, that's one thing. But if you need to go to the mall and run in and run out, you know, your chair might be a better way to do it. So, I mean, there's there's walking and then there's, you know, what's actually reasonable for you to get done what you need to get done in a day. Trish, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Trish Downing, talking about a chair specifically designed to help her hike. You can see a video of it at cprnews.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. We'll leave you with music from Eartha Kitt, who makes an appearance in Third Voice, that poetry collection we heard about earlier in the show. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Like wine is sweet and heady like my love.